let's just remain standing for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your presence, for your power, for your glory. And we pray now for the moving of your Holy Spirit. Grant, Lord, that as we open your word in the Bible, we might hear your voice. Draw us closer to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, it's lovely to see all who are here, and uh, I'm really delighted to have this uh, opportunity. And uh, if you have a Bible to hand uh, beside you, in front of you, uh, it would help you, and it will help me greatly if you turn to page 1249 uh, to that passage which Alan read for us, Revelation chapter 21, page 1249. If ever someone were to draw up a league table of strange, even unfortunate ways of looking at things, I would want to suggest somewhere near the top of that league table would have to be football commentators. I uh, came across a selection of rather unfortunate things that they have come out with, which have been recorded, and I thought you might enjoy listening to these. Mark Lawrenson. Well, if plan A fails, they can always revert to plan A. David Coleman. Forrest have now lost six matches without winning. Ian Wright. Well, I don't want to be too harsh on David Beckham, but he cost us the match. Ian Dark goes on. Never go for a 50-50 ball unless you're 80-20 sure of winning it. John Motson. Some of you may remember this. It's quite famous. For those of you watching in black and white, Spurs are in the all-yellow strip. And uh, probably my favorite, just picture this. Uh, well, that guy dribbles a lot. And the opposition don't like it. You can see it all over their faces. Well, going back to that idea of a league table of strange comment, actually, the point I really want to make, and it's a sad thing to recognize, is that probably also near the top of the league table would be all the various ways in which down through the ages, the message of the book of Revelation has been sometimes wrongly handled and understood. Even just a quick search on Google will reveal all sorts of wacky interpretations of this book. And uh, we're going to see some of them up on the screen, I think. Uh, you will find reference to specific tsunamis and other natural disasters. Some people think that's what it's about. You might find a whole selection of historical human empires. A particular favorite, of course, because of Revelation's use of numbers is specific dates for the second coming. Sometimes you'll find the swarms of locusts interpreted as helicopters in the waging of certain wars. And not least recently, 
you can even find reference to Brexit and the EU as some kind of ultimate antichrist. So, faced with what we have now this morning in Revelation 21, question, how can we avoid our understanding from falling into a similar category? And I want to suggest that we need to take a moment, first of all, to try and put the passage we have in chapter 21 into its broader context of the book as a whole. The big mistake, you see, that many people make when it comes to the book of Revelation is that they think somehow it's in a kind of sequence and on some sort of historical timeline, when in fact, by the nature of what it is, an apocalyptic book in the Bible, it has a gospel purpose and it is time-bound only insofar as it captures the story of salvation. So what John, the apostle, does through a whole series of incredible visions is really to speak to the ongoing, the perennial experience of Christian believers in every age. So the message of this book is for all disciples of Jesus Christ who live between his first coming and his promised second coming. And when you grasp that, then we can begin to see how it is that these verses in chapter 21, they take their place in this series of amazing overlapping patterns. Let me explain that just a bit further and then we'll get to the text itself. I'll put it this way. For all of us who profess to follow Jesus Christ, the reality of the experience of discipleship, to a greater or lesser extent, is a mixture of blessing and buffeting, isn't it? It's both of those. On the one hand, there is the, the, the joy of forgiveness, the wonder of what it means to have been brought into a relationship with the living God. We're given purpose. We have fellowship, all of which derives from knowing the message of the gospel and discovering who Jesus is. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, we all experience hardship. There's a cost involved to following. And at times, if we're honest, there is the downright brutality of both human and spiritual opposition. So the Christian life, far from being some kind of playground, is actually a battleground. And so, the book of Revelation reminds us soberly that there is a beast. There is a dragon. There is a devil. And for John's original readers and listeners who were surrounded by oppressive persecution 
they didn't have to think too hard to see the reality of that. If David Turner were able to come and stand beside me this morning, he would remind us again that it remains the experience of many brothers and sisters across the world today. Yet, even with all of that reality of the difficulty that sometimes is there, there is also with that a future. There is a hope. There is a prospect of something else yet to come. In chapter 4, John describes it as a gathering of God's saints around his throne. In chapter 7, he describes the same thing as this great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation and people and language. Just before where we are in chapters 18 and 19, in the context of what he describes as the destruction of Babylon, the removal of all of that source of oppression, he says this future prospect is a life of endless worship. And here in chapter 21, look at it with me. He describes it as a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that wonderful? So let's now try to think, what do these verses say? And actually then, what do they mean for us this morning? What do they say? Well, they say that, number one, when the fullness of the kingdom of God comes, this glorious prospect, it will be a moment of renewal and perfection. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. In the Bible, the sea is a kind of symbol, a motif of disorder, of disruption, of strife. And, and the sea in the future is done away with symbolically because there is no more strife. There is perfection. And in fact, John goes on to describe how it is that that the glory of the original Garden of Eden will be extended right across the globe. An undoing of all of that curse. Or again, secondly, when the fullness of the kingdom comes, it will be an experience of beauty and consummation. And look at verse 2. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is talking about the eternal wedding of the Lamb, the coming together of Christ as head with his church, his people, those whom we've just been told in chapter 20, whose names are written in the book of life. Is your name written in that book? Have you trusted Christ? Thirdly, when the kingdom of God comes, his eternal purpose of coming to dwell with his people will be ushered in. God's purpose all along has been to gather his people 
under his rule in his place. And the whole history of humanity and all of the story of scripture is describing the various dysfunctions of that. So sometimes his people are not living under his rule. Sometimes they're not living in his place. But when he comes, all of that will be perfectly and finally and eternally established. Or again, when the fullness of God's kingdom come, it will mean the end of all things that cause pain and suffering. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Do you know there's a a wonderful, even earlier anticipation of all of what Revelation 21 talks about? If you're interested, uh, you, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65, page 752. And in his prophecy, Isaiah sees the same thing from much earlier. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. Behold, says the Lord, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Verse 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem, taking delight in my people. The sound of weeping, crying, will no no more be heard. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his years. And all of this, you see, lies ahead. It's a glorious future prospect that is meant to create within us a sense of anticipation, of longing, and actually to speak to the the mixed experience of what we go through in this life. As I was preparing uh, for this morning, I was trying to think of where we are at this point in our lives. Summer is rapidly (laughs) disappearing in the rearview mirror, isn't it? And I think for many of us, The reality of how life feels at the moment is that it's beset with uncertainty. None of us really knows what the future is going to bring. There's a war still raging in Ukraine. We know that the cost of living is already soaring. Some who are here this morning, perhaps you've had some health scare. You've got the anxiety of waiting and wondering about test results. For many, again, the death of Queen Elizabeth on our neighboring island has has caused them to remember their own loss and grief. For others, it may be something in family life, a time of transition. Or maybe it's just that your own spiritual life has grown dry. You're struggling to know a sense of vitality and enthusiasm which once you had. Well, as we bring these thoughts together, what then does this great vision of John want to say to us? We've looked at it in its wider context. We've tried to unpack what it says. What might it mean? Three things I want to suggest. Number one. 
I think it says to all of us, go on contending. We ended our reading at verse 6, but look at verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God. He will be my son. This great future prospect that lies ahead, all of the fulfillment of what is yet to come, is given to us in this vision as a way of inspiring us to stay in the fight here and now. I love these words of Eugene Peterson, the Christian writer, where he says, discipleship is one long obedience in the same direction. We've just got to keep on putting one step in front of another, day by day, trusting Christ afresh. Go on contending, even if it feels difficult, Don't give up. Think of what it is that God has in store for those who will finish the race. Secondly, carry on testifying. By which I mean speaking the message to others. It's interesting that The verses we've looked at this morning at the beginning of chapter 21, they're bookended. Either end of them, there is a very explicit description of the other future prospect, judgment. Look at verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars their place will not be in this future kingdom but in a fiery lake of burning sulfur and let's be honest let's be honest is that not all of us because in and of ourselves we're all guilty of all of these sins and others And the only thing that has made a difference in our lives is that God raised up somebody through whom the message of the gospel was shared with us. And therefore, I think part of our response to this great vision of John is that we resolve afresh to do everything we can to share that message with others. There are people who need to know. John Piper, another American Christian thinker, said this, if you live gladly in order to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, but your joy will be full. So, number one, go on contending. Stay in the fight. Don't give up. Number two, carry on testifying. Do whatever you can to reach as many as possible. And then finally, just keep on trusting. 
for which the qualifier is, hold Jesus Christ at the very center. I read recently the incredibly moving account of an Egyptian Christian lady called Marian Adele. This is a true story. In 2017, she and her husband were traveling on a bus that was hijacked by ISIS terrorists. And when the gunmen came onto the bus, within moments, all of the men, including her husband, had been shot and killed. And then they pointed the gun at her. And they were wanting her to renounce her Christian faith and take on an Islamic vow. And she refused. And she too was shot and injured. And after this dreadful incident, she was interviewed on Egyptian television in hospital. She said this, renounce my faith. How could I? If I had, I might have been let off the bus and treated well. But all I want is Jesus. And we're confident that he will not leave us. And Jesus is ultimately the one who is at the center of John's vision. He is the bridegroom. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. He is the one who, in verse 6, the only one who can say, it is done. And he's not talking there about some mysterious future battle of Armageddon. He's talking about a victory already won. One for us. Through that first Good Friday and Easter. So maybe I can ask the musicians to come forward at that point and uh, we're going to remain seated as we sing what will be our final song. But it's been chosen to allow us to just enjoy afresh and voice our appreciation once more for what it is that Christ has done for us. So we'll sing this and then uh, I'll pray and hand back to Diane. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. Mm -hmm.